impulses are being redirected. We are living in an artificially induced state of consciousness that resembles sleep. Oh, goddamn hacker, that second damn night that asshole's cut in. The movement was begun eight months ago by a small group of scientists who discovered, quite by accident, these signals being sent through... That took the hackers months to figure out how to do this. The poor and the underclass are growing. Racial justice and human rights are non-existent. They have created a repressive society, and we are their unwitting accomplices. Their intention to rule rests with the annihilation of consciousness. We have been lulled into a trance. They have made us indifferent to ourselves, to others. We are focused only on our own game. Please understand, they are safe as long as they are not discovered. That is their primary method of survival. Keep us asleep, keep us selfish, keep us sedated. Welcome, everybody, to Aeon Byte, specifically AB Live. Welcome to the desert of the real, as I say, and I hope you're writing your own gospel and living your own myth. My name is Miguel Connor, and I am still your pompadus of Gnosis. And I hope everybody's doing well on this Mercury Day, this day of Hermes and Odin. And today we have the sequel to a very intriguing, engaging, and very popular show, which was American Gnosis. And now we will have our second part, will be, which will be just as full of Gnosis. So with us today for this sequel, we've got, it is a pleasure to have back Dr. Arthur Versluge. Arthur, thank you very much for coming back. Well, thank you, Miguel, and uh, the very, very slick introduction. I have to say the uh, the intro piece is uh, terrific, and it's great thank to be you. back here. Well, thank you, thank you very much, thank you, thank you very much. Yeah, still have Elvis on my head. I recently went to Graceland, and it was an amazing trip. Need to share more, but uh, yeah, um, again, I finally got to read American Gnosis, and I highly think this should be part of any should be on the shelf for anybody who's into the esoterica modern gnosticism even ancient gnosticism as arthur talks about some of these old old groups and how they relate to today and there's actually a promo which we will share later on if you want to get the book for a discount i see people in the chat room if you have any questions please super chat them as you can see I am alone. Vance has his Clark Kent job, so he won't be able to join us. He will join us later today as we have another live show in the evening. So please super chat your questions or your complaints towards me. But why don't we hit the ground running? Uh, again, the book was amazing. And uh, in our last interview, Arthur, we discussed uh, basically neo-gnosticism and how it manifests in the united states we covered uh muses uh, miguel serrano we covered a few, few groups and how it's manifesting today and become popular with the right even though the right doesn't like gnosticism and how it's manifested in many movies and books today so the question is what do we want to talk about today so maybe a little summary for the audience, what is American Gnosis and what is this neo-Gnosticism today? Well, the book the book is really uh, the development of, of years of research where, uh, you know, for a long time I've been exploring what, uh, as, how religion and literature and politics uh, converge with uh, themes that are esoteric but really Gnostic. Uh, Gnosticism uh, and this book intersect in ways uh, with my earlier books and other books that I, in ways that I didn't expect. Mm -hmm. And neo-Gnosticism is a term that I developed to uh, describe Gnosticism as it appears in contemporary society. Because I think what we're seeing now uh, is not identical with ancient Gnosticism, 
but it's drawing on themes of ancient Gnosticism, but applied in ways that are in uh, uh, contemporary politics or literature. And it's really interesting how this continues, this kind of adaptation of Gnostic themes like archons or demiurge or the word gnosis or the red pill or the black pill or the blue pill that you had in your intro, how all these things are actually taking on more energy and appearing in new ways all the time. And so that's why I use the term neo-Gnosticism, because the neo part, of course, that refers to the matrix, but it also refers to uh, it also refers to uh, the fact that something that's happening now is new. And so to differentiate from uh, early Christianity, I think it's really helpful to have the new uh, term like neo-Gnostic. And so. A lot of the book is about neo-Gnosticism and uh, what I call cosmological gnosis, but it also includes some themes of metaphysical gnosis, and and we could talk about those. I don't think we discussed that very much in the last conversation. So I suggest that modern American neo-Gnosticism tends to be Gnosticism without gnosis. Not Not completely but to to a large degree and at the same time we also have gnosis without gnosticism mm-hmm. and so those two those two themes are actually the bookends of the you could say of the book so that's my kind of thumbnail summary of of the or an overview of the argument in the book yeah, I know in our last interview, we talked about sort of the, the kernels or the, the sources. And of course, you make the case that Gnosticism is almost as American as apple pie in a way. Uh, you have this sort of stoic pessimism that came out of the Wild West and colonial times. And it sort of built upon it. And it was, again, this uh, sort of, yeah, again, this mystical existentialist vibe. And uh, many American authors really grabbed onto it, as you write. Uh, some of them were Edgar Allan Poe, Nathaniel Hawthorne, Herman Melville. You can see Gnostic themes. As the 20th century came on and uh, post-modern, postmodernism and technology really started to weigh down on people, other, uh, other authors took this sort of or innovated or developed this neo-Gnosticism, like, uh, as you write, Joseph Conrad, uh, David Lindsay, a precursor of Philip K. Dick, Olaf Stapledon, uh, and, of course, Thomas Pynchon, and even some of the parts of C.S. Lewis, J.R. Tolkien, and others sort of developed this neo-Gnosticism vibe, which is... Uh, you could say is uh, this idea, this Hans Jonas idea that we're trapped in the world. It may be trapped under the weight of technology, under culture, under these powerful, massive figures. But and at the same time, there's no transcendence like the ancient Gnostics. Is that more or less what it is, Arthur? Yeah, that you you give a good uh, overview of the literature and and. Uh, in the book, I have a chapter where I go through these largely American authors. I do refer to a few, a few British or uh, non-American authors because, uh, you know, that's the case all the way through the book. That you can't really—it's uh, very hard to talk about only American, only United States authors because right. uh, or figures, but. I was really surprised when I went through the uh, scholarship about all these different authors, including Cormac McCarthy, of course. Uh, that I could make the case that they're neo-Gnostic or that there are neo-Gnostic themes in their work from other scholars. I mean, I let other people make the case that all these figures are Gnostic because there's so many articles. I actually was asked recently to do uh, an article on uh, William S. Burroughs. Mm, and uh, so I went through, I mentioned him in the book, and I mentioned his neo-Gnostic uh, aspects in, you know, his um, 
uh, magical, magical dimensions of his work, but those are understood and understandable through their neo-Gnostic framing. And so I went and looked at a scholarship for this article on neo-Gnostic William S. Burroughs and found out there's a dozen books and articles that I've got just on Burroughs, okay, and how he's neo-Gnostic. Every single author in that I mention, other people are making the case that they're neo-Gnostic. And you're absolutely right. When you go through all of these different figures, there are these themes that keep recurring. And it's this underlying idea of, which you see in Pinchon as well, of being trapped or being in a hostile cosmos and these archon figures and, you know, a, a false cosmos that's created, uh, that's, that's there, that's present in so many of these uh, authors, Burroughs and many others. So it's, it is, as you say, as American as apple pie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you even uh, quote... Pynchon, who, and you quote him saying, uh, he is critical of the, quote, growing ascendancy of the artificial over the natural. And, but he puts forward a, quote, gradually evolving dream of Orphic unity. So, yeah, that says it right there again. And again, we're trapped in this world and it could be technology. We've fallen into technology and now the the nightmare of William Blake and Urizen, how we've become so into a uh, into the age of enlightenment that now only reason, only the sort of mechanistic thinking, and as of course you've said, that always leads to totalitarianism if we don't do it. Uh, but the question, Arthur, would be this: You talk about neo gnosticism as gnosticism without transcendence. Some of the listeners might be saying. Well, what do you mean by transcendence? Because, of course, you write in your book that there are no real Gnostic movies that have transcendence. And people might be saying, well, what are you talking about, Arthur? Neo becomes individuated at the end of the first Matrix. And in uh, Dark City, uh, Murdoch kind of, you know, he masters the tuning and he's all happy with the sunset. So what do you mean there's no transcendence in this modern day Gnosticism? Well, that's a... That's a really interesting question, and and you're right uh, to mention Dark City because Dark City is, and I I say this in the book that uh, among films, Dark City is one where you can make an argument that at the end uh, there's there's a kind of transcendence when the main character becomes this kind of demiurge figure. Of right. course, then it's the question if. Uh, the main character becomes a demiurge. Is that real? A demiurgic figure? Is that really transcendence? And the same with, uh, you know, the first Matrix film. At the end of the film, is that gnosis? Well, it all depends on whether you, you, uh, how you want to describe or how you how you define gnosis. And in the book, I. And elsewhere, actually, in my writing, I've I've made this differentiation, this kind of spectrum, from from dualism, extreme dualism, to transcendent unity. Mm -hmm. And the extreme dualism is the hostile cosmos, where we're trapped in a host. That's dualistic. A demiurge creating a false cosmos. That that is a way of describing dualism and the dualistic nature of our experience. And you see that in these films. But what you don't see so much is the other end of that spectrum. And that other end is something that I discuss later in the book. And I also discuss in terms of defining gnosis. Because in Buddhism, in Buddhist scholarship, contemporary Buddhist scholarship, the word gnosis is used as a a matter of course for translating trans, uh, what you could call, uh, using more words, I suppose, tr something like transcendent knowledge or transcendence or uh, transcendence of subject and object or uh, enlightenment mm -hmm. or realization. Well, that those are all 
more or less roughly synonymous with the term gnosis as freedom or liberation, going beyond this kind of dualistic self, other, entrapment. And there, you could make a case that uh, Dark City is about that. Um, At the same time, you can also make a case, as some scholars have, that it's actually not about that. It's about becoming a demiurge yourself. And (laughs) that's a that's a question that that has larger implications, because that's why I say it's fairly widespread to find these neo-Gnostic themes everywhere in contemporary society. It's actually pretty rare to find the word gnosis used and the the concept gnosis. Uh, You do find it, uh, but it's relatively rare compared to themes of archons. Because archons in society resonate. People understand that there there are archons, that there are these beings that are, uh, or uh, you could say people, depending on your interpretation, in government, say, uh, that are hostile to their own population. And so they're archons. And that that interpretation is fairly widespread. Not so widespread as is how you get to freedom or transcendence. And so that's something, you know, we could talk about a little bit. Yeah, certainly, because after all, taking the red pill doesn't mean you've left the game. It's just the beginning of the fight. And uh, somebody in the chat was talking about Kafka, which you're talking about. Of course, Kafka, extremely neo-Gnostic, without a doubt. Camus, yeah, if you're you're into existentialism, you're smack right into neo-Gnosticism, without a doubt. And uh, it seems, as you start your book, the most neo-Gnostic movie although these days I want to call it a documentary, is they live. And obviously there's no transcendence. There's not even freedom really at the end, even after defeating or exposing the Archons. And you see that in Cormac McCarthy. There's no winning. Uh, you even see that in Philip K. Dick and something like in his Valis trilogy. Sophia gets killed. They fail to expose. Valis gets destroyed. So in a way that is true. There's no... There's no winning at the end, it seems, right? (laughs) Well, in a lot of these. Now, Thomas Pynchon is interesting because I had thought of him as as really pretty, you know, pretty dark, uh, pretty pessimistic. Mm -hmm. And so when I went back to his work, uh, I discovered that there actually were some optimistic or at least not totally uh, black pessimistic um, elements in Pynchon's work. And so there are, every now and then, there are these these uh, uh, moments of, you could say, illumination that appear where he's, you know, Pynchon is referring to, to um, you know, a kind of Orphic dream, you know, and a kind of um, Shambhala. Uh, now, it could be an illusion, you know, that's illusion in the sense of uh, illusory. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's, it is still there, but largely it's, it is, I think, a reflection of our society. And so that's true in terms of these different films and also literature that they're reflecting the nature of our society back to us. And so what you see is, um, uh, much more a pessimistic than an optimistic picture reflected back to us. That's, that's just true in most of, most of these. Now they live, uh, you know, the matrix and many of these emerge in so many memes, so many countless memes. Uh, they, they have produced so many images. Uh, I have a library now of thousands of these and, and they they are a way of reflecting. Memes are interesting because basically memes, if literature or movies are reflecting our society back to us, then memes are a way of meta-reflecting the films <laughs> back to and on society to reveal these things. And so it's really, uh, I think, the pessimistic dimension 
is also optimistic because if you create a meme based on they live, what you're trying to do is uh, typically is wake people up or show them something. And that's an optimistic act, right? So it's a way of using pessimism as a way to generate something good, right? right? So there is that aspect of it, you know? Yeah, it it is waking up uh, one way or another. And I thought it was interesting because, again, I'm going back to you saying you couldn't find any transcendence in Gnostic film. So I'm like, okay, so I'm taking your formulas, trying to figure The only film I could think of after, you know, 50 minutes of thought was uh, Darren Aronofsky's The Fountain. Now, I know there's many... It's one of those murky films like Mudhall on Drive that you can break down and interpret a million different ways. But through a Gnostic lens, which you can make the case, the character, or at least one of the timeline characters, does become free of samsara. He does escape this world of, you know, demiurge and pain and all that. So maybe that's a case to be made, Arthur, the fountain by Ar- Aronofsky. <laughs> well, I... You know, thank you for that. I think that's that's a really interesting uh, observation, and it you know it leads me to where I'm where I am now uh, to reflect on that because I keep discovering things and finding things. It it doesn't stop. It doesn't. doesn't it's not like I publish the book and then it all stops and I don't. And suddenly the memes <laughs> stop and there's no more memes and there's no more. You know, all of a sudden. Before the book comes, you know, just as a book is getting ready to come out, then um, out comes a book called Dark Aeon with Joe a- by Joe Allen about transhumanism in, in terms of Gnosticism. So oh. suddenly, here's a book that I certainly would have put into my, I would have put it into American Gnosis for sure. And it fit beautifully, it fits beautifully into the argument in the book. But again, and again, it's very, it's pretty pessimistic. Uh, and you know, it came out after the book was already in, in, uh, final production. So there's no way. So there's so many things that keep re, you know, keep emerging. Uh, I found new books in the last couple of days, right? New memes. Like it does never end <laughs> from yesterday. Right. So, you know, it doesn't end. It is, if anything, I think. Uh, intensifying the amount of neo-gnostic uh, substrata in our society. Uh, I mean, even something like uh, the hit show this spring, Silo, that came out very gnostic, and I mean these these shows Hollywood just keeps put, putting them out because again, it's a reflection of our culture, and as you argue very well, our culture is very gnostic, very neo-gnostic, and. That's not going to end as long as there's an American psyche or, as you talk about, Ian Cudiano's brick. We have that Gnostic brick in our collective psyche. It's never going to end as long as there's an America. <laughs> yeah, well, bricks, because these different elements are separatable. And so so uh, they, they uh, keep recurring in different forms, like a pattern, you know, like patterns, uh, different patterns. And so that's, you know, that was really an insight, I think, that uh, that he provided us with, you know, toward the end of the book, I do talk a bit about uh, what you were alluding to with the uh, uh, film, The Fountain, and that is the the uh, metaphysical gnosis and how that appears in in contemporary society. And I give some examples of that. Uh Metaphysical gnosis here, meaning uh, transcendence. And one example I give, I referred to before in a different book, and that's uh, the author Franklin Merrill Wolf, mm-hmm. who Franklin Merrill Wolf uh, lived in the mountains of California uh, with his wife uh, and a steady stream of visitors. And in later life, he lived to an incredible age, and he had these experiences of transcendence, which he wrote about in books. And some of his visitors included 
uh, people that are pretty well known today, like Alan Wallace, who's now a well-known Buddhist Lama and uh, teacher. Uh, then uh, Joel Morwood, who founded a spiritual, a kind of uh, perennial, uh, perennial philosophy spiritual center out in Oregon. And he became an author, published a number of books about his spiritual experiences. And what these people have in common, and the reason I'm, I'm referring to them in this, in this book, and I mentioned a few others as well, is that they are championing, and in some cases like Morewood, uh, championing uh, in neo-Gnostic terms, gnosis. Gnosis as transcendent knowledge but largely without the archons, without the demiurge, without the uh, dark view of society. No, not completely without that. I'm not going to say right, uh, right. not completely because um, Morwood did have some pretty dark experiences early in life because mm-hmm. he was in Vietnam. Uh, so he got to see uh, death and uh, destruction up close. Uh, he also went to communist China. And uh, he saw what that was like. Uh, he was actually a kind of a believer until he went. And he realized that what he was being given was a Potemkin village, this kind of false worldview. And then he came back, had this kind of, came back to the U.S., had this kind of uh, uh, dark night of the soul experience, and then had the spiritual breakthrough and so it's, you know, he's he's kind of a classic American story. I mean, his life reads almost like a novel. Um, and so at the same time, he and these other authors represent what I call metaphysical gnosis, that end of the spectrum. Mm-hmm. They do have this these other elements, some of them, but uh, primarily their work focuses on Transcendence, liberation, freedom, um, enlightenment, and so I, you know, I think that's an important element in this larger picture. This is very easy to focus only on the uh, archons and how they appear in the control of society and those kinds right. of things, and those are important themes. But the gnosis part is central to for example, the Gospel of Thomas and uh, other Nag Hammadi texts, uh, you can certainly argue. And Gnosis is, you know, often overlooked in discussions of Gnosticism. So I wanted to bring it in, you know, explicitly because I think it's it's vital to include that. Oh, yes, indeed, for sure. And uh, why don't we get into uh, something that will definitely resonate with the crowd today, uh, very popular figures. As you call them, you put these into, uh, you have many categories so people can understand how Gnosticism manifests, just like in ancient times, there was no block Gnosticism. There were different groups who had different ideas, but you call these American or Contic Neo-Gnosticism. And, uh, of course, the two figures that are very popular are John Lamlash and David Icke, who have similar ideas and, again, have uh, followers in the tens of thousands, perhaps hundreds of thousands across the world. I think there was a poll where I think 6% or 9% of Americans believed in the lizard people. So it has made an effect. So these figures are, would you say, the culmination? Because, again, this is... uh, completely about the archons trapping us or trapping Sophia in the world. Although, like you said, Ike especially can go into really beautiful metaphysical speeches and talks, right? We're all one. Everything's fine. Kind of like, like, uh, like Advaita Vedanta almost with Ike. (laughs) That's absolutely true. And, you know, he, uh, his work has developed and changed over time. And, you know, I, that's why I go, go through a number of his different books and different, you know, different uh, materials by Ike. And you're absolutely right. He includes this, uh, these dimensions of spiritual uh, spirituality, you could say Uh, these, these spiritual elements that are uh, 
that alleviate or relieve what otherwise would be a uh, or provide a a way out of what what otherwise would be a very very dark vision, uh, because you know being uh, being trapped the interdimensional uh, you know reptilians and the other aspects of things that he said about the nature of our society contemporary global society uh, those are pretty pessimistic and yet he has this optimistic side and so he's he's a really interesting uh, figure and I I discuss him at length even though he really isn't he is well known in America and he can f- undoubtedly fill a stadium um but at the same time you know he is across the pond uh but he's influential enough that I felt I had to bring otherwise some oh, of the yeah. things I'm writing about would make no sense at all you know <laughs> uh you have to explain the uh and discuss the different elements of his work in order to uh make sense of things that appear on Reddit or Gab or other sources of alternative or you could say counter, you know, countercultural maybe thought. Uh, Ike is very influential in sometimes surprising ways. Uh, now, John Lamb Lash, he's, he's uh, a bit different in that he makes some claims about, um, you know, revelation and specific kinds of revelation in a Gnostic or neo-Gnostic context. And so uh, he's also different in that he has this, uh, these related websites and programs, some of which are, uh, uh, how do you want to put it exactly? uh targeting targeting individuals um he has a program of oh, yeah. uh, war party a war party program going out and targeting Tibetan individuals magic. for black magic black magic and that kind of thing well that's that's quite different from ike so the two of them actually there's a little bit of bad blood and i talk about this in the in the book and um at they're they're very different in terms of uh, how they, there's a lot of crossover, but they're ultimately f- pretty different in how they approach things. And so, uh, I think that comes out a little bit in terms of, uh, how I discuss them, but they're both, you're right, influential, um, and largely in- influential in getting out there ideas concerning, uh, control of society, control in society, elites, um, you know, non-physical beings or interdimensional beings, all these kinds of things are themes that go from their books and online presentations and, and uh, other means out into society and become influential in ways that are sometimes uh, hit a little hidden, but very powerful actually. So you find reptilian references uh, in the most unexpected places, I have to say. Uh, And unless you are referring, unless you have David Icke in your head and you know this, you would have no idea, like, what on earth is this this green reptile photo of, of, uh, you know, King Charles? What, What on earth is that, right? Well... You got to go back all the way through this in order to figure out what that actually is referring to and how it fits into this larger neo-Gnostic picture. So it is fascinating. There's so many elements in this book that have have been uh, largely overlooked. And there's not a lot of scholarship on these kinds of things. And so I, you know, I really enjoyed exploring and uh, delving into these um, sometimes really wild um areas at the same time arthur i mean i think john lamb lash and david Icke, they have a good grasp on the nakamati library i've read their articles they understand the scholarship the separation 
all that stuff. So they do have a they have a good grasp. But again, the, it's almost like the again America. What's our thing? The last generation space exploration, aliens, extraterrestrials. So they tie that very well to the archons, which again creates this new form of uh, Gnosticism in today that makes sense. And there's an individual in the chat, Black Eagle, who te- keeps saying about how you and I need to go out to nature more and uh, la da da da, that nature's fine. But here's a little secret, Black Eagle Gnosticism is very echo friendly. In fact, John Lamb Lash is all about the environment, right? Gaia, Sophia, we need to be good to the earth. And when you look at ancient Gnostics like the Manichaeans, the Cathars, they were like the most eco-friendly people in the world. They were out in nature. They were vegetarians. They would not harm animals. They were like more environmentalists than any environmentalist today. And when you look at some of the writers, whether it's... uh, uh, Cormac McCarthy, and others, they lived outside in the woods or in cabins. They lived away from society. So that's kind of the paradox that Gnosticism and Neo-Gnosticism, were trapped in the world, is very eco-friendly. Well, it's, you know, basically what Neo-Gnosticism provides are uh, ways of framing critique of contemporary society. Definitely. And so... Uh, my own life. I mean, I live in uh, on a farm in rural, you know, uh, rural Michigan. I, you know, I live uh, in a na- in nature much more than most people do. I think, or a lot of people certainly, and uh, that doesn't change the fact that we all share uh, this technological and political and uh, entertainment uh, superstructure that exists. And the way people critique it is through these, uh, it's it's natural to critique it through these neo-Gnostic uh, terms because they work. They work really well. But that's that's a form of critique. And you don't want to confuse that critique with what, if you're like David Icke, for example, he's critiquing contemporary society, but then he's pointing to an alternative. And the alternative is deeper, you know, spiritual life. And in that, he's very much aligned with, you know, uh, a neo-Gnostic or Gnostic, for that matter, critique of the empire, right? Yeah, that's for sure. And, and of course, but then again, as you say, you've got uh, John Lamb Lash and his Kalika warriors, and that's the other side. But again, as you know, I mean, my views on Gnosticism actually get strengthened when I go out in nature because I do see beauty, but I also see how horrific this universe is towards animals, plants, you know, it's, it's all right there. The Gnostics weren't just... Uh, coming with stuff out of thin air. They saw that this was a universe of temporality, a universe of pain, death. And as you say, neo-Gnosticism extends it to like, oh my God, our governments and these creatures are all part of this. They're making things worse, you know, (laughs) like the angels in the book of Enoch. They're just screwing things up. (laughs) Well, one of the the figures I discuss in the book uh, was, and we mentioned it last time, was Charles Musace, who... Mm-hmm. who uh, makes a critique of not just society, but of the nature of our cosmos, of the world we find ourselves in. Uh, and he does it based partly on uh, Mandaean and uh, uh, Manichaean uh, Gnostic and Gnostic critiques of the, the the idea of the fall of the cosmos, that, that our cosmos came about through a kind of mistake. Um, he, he discusses this in ways that are really uh, provocative and interesting. So I wanted to bring him in because one of the uh, contributions of the book American Gnosis is to have a chapter on him and his work because there's been literally nothing published on him up till now. And so in this, I give, I give this overview of the entire kind of trajectory of his work. 
which started with Christian theosophy, which I liken very the tradition of Jakob Burma, which is very close to ancient Gnosticism in so many ways. Oh, yeah. And he starts there and then applies it in contemporary scientific terms. And he moved in the scientific community. He had a PhD actually in uh, in religion, but his uh, a lot of his life work was in the sciences. He's an extremely uh, fascinating character who very much would resonate with what you had said about the fallen nature of the cosmos that we find ourselves in and what he called uh, its parasitic nature. He was fascinated by the idea of parasitism and parasites. Mm-hmm. And so he would uh, be exploring this in scientific terms, but he was thinking about it really in larger cosmological terms. The idea that everything in our society, everything in our natural world is somehow imbued with suffering and uh it didn't need to be this way. It was kind of a cosmic mistake. That was something that he really reflected on and uh, uh, discussed at length. So I, I wanted to mention that. For sure. Yeah, it uh, definitely, you might say that the descendants of this would be, again, John Lamb Lash and David Ike and their idea of the mind parasites that go into our heads and take take over us and of course this harkens back to the gnostic idea of the counterfeit spirit everything has this code or this uh this terrible thing and i gotta forget who's the author who wrote the mind paris colin wilson thank you cyber view i saw that and we will get to your cyber chat but yeah he so this idea is there and then this reminds me of of course gurdjieff's very cool well crazy idea of the kundar buffin that we have some organ that is just ruins everything keeps us trapped in our robotic states but then you bring in an author who has like the answer to that and that's what i wanted to get into arthur because this figure may not be known well in the united states but he is huge in south america europe i mean we're talking hundreds of thousands millions of people Bigger than Scientology is bigger than Thelem, and that's uh, Samuel Aun Weor. What tell us about why? Where does he fall into, and why did you include him in the book? Besides the fact that, like Muses, he is kind of overlooked in the United States, but he is a giant in modern neo-gnosticism. Oh, that's absolutely true, and very little discussed actually in in the U.S. But um, I included him because he's so in, influential. I mean, he has a he, and what I chose to do in discussing Weor uh, is essentially go through his books because he was a prolific author and he, he wasn't born with the name, name Samael um, Aun Weor. He, he uh, took that name. Uh, that was a, you know, a, a, a later assumed name, but as a, South American author, he published, uh, he came out of a kind of, uh, you could say, 19th century, late 19th, early 20th century uh, Theosophical Society worldview. He was very influenced by Theosophical Society, by, you know, Blavatsky's Secret Doctrine and, you know, Isis Unveiled and, 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 and kind of that ambiance. So that's where he was coming from. And he, I mean, he's explicit about that. He, he, you know, it's very clear. And he also is drawing on a little bit on Gurdjieff and some other sources. Um, but he had his own vision and his own, his own uh, very clearly, explicitly Gnostic vision. He calls it Gnostic. Uh, he is coming from also some influence of Asian religions, uh, some uh, references to Hindu Tantra, uh, Hinduism, little bit of Buddhism maybe, but but he's out of this kind of synthesis. He creates his own synthesis, and so I go through his different books. I also go through some of the subsequent figures that are 
well-known or have a presence in the different groups that emerged from his primary group. So there are all these subgroups, which are also Gnostic or neo-Gnostic um, across Latin America, also in Europe. Uh, I don't go into their, uh, I, I just didn't have space. I would have had to go through an entire, like the whole book would have to be devoted to all of the Amazing. subgroups, their teachings, um, all of the different people. I allude to different people. There was a guy in Australia, uh, different, different, um, uh, followers and continuers, and some of them drawn, some of them claim to be Buddhist or to be Tibetan Buddhist. Uh, I go through a little bit of that. Uh, and so the primary thing that Weor uh, emphasized in his work, and I'll just be straight out about this, is do not ejaculate. Um this is like you go through his books and you want one sentence that, you know, that uh, summarizes everything. Do not ejaculate. That is the the essential point that he reiterates over and over. So uh, if you do ejaculate, you are extremely bad. And so uh, he says that uh, actually what he says is uh, if you ejaculate, um, you or if you uh, encourage ejaculation, then you're uh, a black magician or a black tantra, and he goes through that. Uh, so Weor is a very interesting figure. Uh, he's widely influential, and so that's why I go in go into his uh, summary of his different books in this book. Yeah, and and again, his I have friends that were his followers, nicest people, but that's one of the things. Yeah, don't uh, you got to to get the Kundalini thing? You've got to get out. I don't know if he's getting. I think he was getting that obviously from Eastern tradition, but I think there's the Pista Sophia. It, some have said is an answer against sex magic Gnostics. You know the Borberites and their Carper creations. So. The Pits Sophia is like telling him, no, no, we got to be conservative. So there's some passages about no seed on the floor, no seed there. So he got it from there. And yeah, we are this, yeah, he's uh, very syncretic, almost like Aleister Crowley. I know, and there are some differences like, you know, Ike and Lamb are against this certain minority, unfortunately, in their writings. Uh, Weir is against homosexuals. That's very blatant, too, for some reason. And uh, the idea that they call themselves like Samuel, and he has a follower called Beelzebub, I think that's taken from the church father saying that the Gnostics always made uh, heroes from villains. You know, you had the Canaanites, you had the gospel of Judas. You had the Gnostics were always going for the little guy in the Bible and bringing him up. So they did the same thing. And the organ that you're, that I forgot to mention, as Gurdjieff says, the Kunda buffer, uh, we had the Kundartiguador, which is the opposite, right? That's the organ that gives us Gnosis. As long as we don't ejaculate. <laughs> well, that's, it's, uh, it's interesting how you you can see all of these different elements inter intersect or interwoven in Weor's work. There's there's definitely the case that he he was drawing and referring to a whole array of different things. And it's not that um, uh, there are whole books devoted to the theme of not ejaculating. Uh, an example of that, and that not in the Weor tradition. Here I'm referring to Cupid's poisoned arrow, which is a book about about exactly that. In fact, my own book on uh, Western sexual mysticism uh, includes the idea which recurs in the 19th century into the 20th century of Caretza, which is uh, uh, sex without ejaculation, essentially. Yeah. So that theme is present going, you know, going uh, back certainly into the 19th century, but much, much earlier than that. So there are different ways that these themes do reappear. Uh, and not surprisingly, it reappears in uh, his work as well. 
Oh, yeah, indeed. Indeed, a fascinating figure and uh, so much to learn about him, but he has to be included in the conversation. Do you see any of the, I think you're right, yeah, you do say he seems like a perennialist, but he does have some existential neo-gnosticism about the evil in the world, or what's Weir's, Weir's take? Well, I would I would say... Um... He's explicitly positioning himself as uh, Gnostic in ways that are not uh, not perennialist like a lot of the figures that I was referring to earlier. I mean, uh, to give an example, Joel Morwood positions himself as drawing on all these different traditions equally. So he has a book where he's drawing on Christian practice and then He's drawing on uh, Buddhism, and he's drawing on all these different practices, Sufism, and so forth. And so that's a, that's a characteristically uh, North American form of perennialism that goes back to the traditionalists. When you create a synthesis that's distinctive, distinctive uh, sectarian uh, entity like what we're talking about here where it's organizational in that way, it's not quite the same thing. It's a little bit different. Uh, So perennial, you know, perennial philosophy drawing on on different religions and emphasizing that there's a unity underlying them that's present you know, to some extent in some of the Latin American figures, but it's not the same thing as what I was referring to with Morewood. So there are ways to differentiate these things, I think. Uh, And it becomes more subtle, the more differentiated, the more subtle the differences are. Uh, And so, you know, I don't want to make a false statement because I'm talking. And then uh, in terms of writing, I would say something more nuanced, you know, uh, but it's easy to lose the nuances of what we're talking about. Yeah, of course. Uh, and uh, there was a super chat. Again, Cyberview, thank you. I'm going to put it up here. Did Gnostics believe that reproduction was a cause of suffering? To stop the suffering, we should not reproduce. But doesn't that allow for the contemplation of the extermination of all humanity? I, I can speak that that's kind of... Uh, a myth about the ancient Gnostics, which Karen King and others have said, having a family was good. The Sethians saw the supreme triad as father, mother, child. Uh, the Gnostic books talk about how the seed of Seth must be spread so one will be bring the destruction of of the demiurge. So I don't think uh, the Thomasine sects were kind of more incratic. But so was Christianity and Judaism back there in the second, third. So it was like a, it was the fashion, you might say, you know, we hate Rome. Let's just not have children and go extinct. What about in modern times, Arthur? Any, uh, what view, do you see any interesting views on reproduction from uh, modern neo-Gnosticism or existentialist neo-Gnosticism? Well, you know, it just, you're absolutely right. It all depends whose interpretation you're looking at and what, what people, what people define as Gnostic. And, you know, if you start including, uh, certain groups as Gnostic, even though they're, you know, a thousand years later than this group, which was very ascetic is Gnostic. Are they Gnostic? I don't know. Uh, it's, it's questionable. Were the Bogomils Gnostic? Were the, you know, the Cathars, were they? Maybe. Um, you know, when you, you're looking at contemporary groups, uh, it's one thing. But when you're looking at Gnosticism, neo-Gnosticism as a way of critiquing society, I don't think that's pro or con reproduction. I think it's a critique of screwed up things people see that are screwed up in society. And so it's not making an anti-reproduction statement. Now, Weor was definitely making a do not ejaculate kind of uh, prohibition. And that's a different animal, okay? Uh, But 
broadly speaking, I think neo-Gnostic memes and the way they appear in these different uh, works that we've looked at and different films and different novels and different sources in politics, they don't really correspond one way or another to a statement on reproduction. They just don't. And if they are, we're still back to the American Gnosticism because with our birth rates collapsing, we might end up like uh, Graham was saying, Pong was saying, we might end up like the Shakers or some other groups will become extinct, just like it's happening in Japan and Europe. But uh, anyway, I digress. Well, to uh, get as we get towards the end, uh, Arthur, I don't know if there's anything else you want to mention. I thought I'd mention too. You have a great section on psychedelic gnosis, which of course that includes uh, you know the exemplars like Terence McKenna, Daniel Pinchbeck, uh, the reality sandwich crowd, and that's the idea of uh, yeah using entheogens to sort of deal with this uh, this simulation, right? Yeah, that's right. And Chris Beige, too. Um, you know, McKenna, uh, if if people are going to read anybody uh, uh, on psychedelic gnosis, I would say McKenna because he's he's just so much fun uh, to read. Terrence McKenna's sort of mind blowing works. But but that's true throughout that whole that whole section that uh, it I would say that chapter uh, like so much in the book, is mind-bending. It, you read it, and you know you have to stop and rethink things. And so, you know, this is true in terms of literature. It's true in terms of film, but it's true, especially in the chapter on psychedelic gnosis. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, thanks for mentioning that. You know, there's there's an apocalyptic worldview that's also kind of a sub theme. Uh, to tie in. Uh, but that apocalypticism is definitely present. There are actually apocalyptic prophecies in the chapter. Uh, not my prophecies, but those of uh, Pinchbeck, as you mentioned, uh, Chris Bache, the whole thing is, is his whole, uh, he has a whole book called Dark Knight Early Dawn, which is essentially his LSD-based uh, prophecies, really, about what's happening and what's going to happen in terms of uh, the breakdown of society and development of new society, which is kind of a mirror of a psych, uh, psychedelic breakdown and then re- uh, recovery, but on a kind of collective level. And you read these things, and, and it just compels you to stop and say, wait, what? <laughs> you know, it's really, it's really uh, one of the great, uh, joys of writing a book like this is that it allows me to participate in these kinds of moments of wait, what? <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. Twenty twelve wasn't that far away. <laughs> yeah, that's right. It's and uh, var- variants of that, you know, undoubtedly will recur. I will make a prophecy that there will be more prophecies. No, oh, yeah, for right? sure, for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. For it sure. goes without saying. Yeah. So awesome. Well, uh, as we were talking, and for the audience, let me put this up. Uh, where is it? Here we see a picture. Let's get Arthur in here of American Gnosis. Uh, and for the audience, for the next few days, and I will have this on the show notes, both on the audio version and the video version that comes out on YouTube and Rockfin right after the show. And I'll read it to you. Right now, American Gnosis is on sale for the next few days for 40% off. That is only $54 for the hardcover. The promotion code is EXAAR23. And you must do it through the uh, your publisher's website, right? And I'll have yeah. the link on the show notes. Yeah. And I have the link on my personal website as well. And this is a very short term deal. Uh, and you have to go through the link. Uh, so they offered that. And what the heck, you know, so it's a it's a pretty good deal. I don't actually get a better deal than that myself. So <laughs> that's the truth. <laughs> so, you know, listen, I thank you for that. And uh, 
you know, hopefully people will find the book as as uh, fun as I did. You know, really, it's been fun to talk about it and it was fun to write it. I really enjoyed doing it and I enjoy sharing it. And, uh, you know, it's so many different mind bending things in this book, uh, things that caused me to pause and reflect. So, uh, you know, thank you for the opportunity to reflect on it. I put myself under, I put myself in mute. Uh, so again, before I put myself on mute, are you going to blog more about American Gnosis and Gnostic things as they come out? Or uh... Yeah, absolutely. And I'm going to continue to develop the collection of memes. I started a collection of memes on uh, uh, that are re- referred to in the book on my personal website, arthurversluce.com. And so I'll do a little more in terms of, um, you know, blogging about the the book and uh, reactions and responses to it and so on, and maybe responses to responses. And, uh, you know, but primarily I'm doing podcasts. And so I enjoy, I enjoy podcast uh, conversation. And so, you know, I really appreciate the opportunity to, you know, talk about these things. Awesome. Awesome. And in case I didn't see it, Jim, thanks for the super chat. Yes, I will check out Lady Babylon. There's always so much good stuff out. Great questions and uh, conversations there in the chat. Sorry, I got myself uh, (laughs) put on mute, which is something I usually don't do. Uh, And don't forget the discount for Arthur's book. Don't forget to get American Gnosis because it is uh, one of my favorite books this this year in a book I know I'm going to go back to and reference even with some of the great characters and writers that uh, most people don't know about. But uh, we are at the end, Arthur. As always, it was great having you on the show, and it will be great the next time we can chat again. Well, thank you, Miguel. Really appreciate it. And thank you, everyone. And like I said, there is another show tonight at 8 Central. So check us out. Eduardo Cano will come to give us a presentation on Moloch and some of the other ancient gods and some great shows. There will be an audio version for this in the next day or two. So uh, keep coming back. Keep supporting Aeon Byte. Could use your support in any way, shape, or form. And yeah, subscribe and like. And everybody, take care until we talk again. And enjoy the rest of your Mercury Day until we meet again. Take care, everybody. Wait! Hey! You better find yourself someplace to hide and keep praying nobody ever finds you. Try these on. Look, you crazy mother. Put these on. Hey! Stay away from me! I'm telling you, you dumb son of a... Trying to save you and your family's life. You couldn't even save your own! I'm giving you a choice. Either put on these glasses or start eating that trash can. Not this year. Okay. All right. Okay. Come on. Come on! I don't want to fight you. Come on. I don't want to fight you. Stop it. No. Put on the glasses. Man, I told you I didn't want to be in. You dirty motherfucker.
Take a look. Put them on. No! Sorry, man. Yes. 